So what we've seen happen in the indigenous territory called Apiterewa is is really it's it's quite emblematic of what is happening in the rest of, of Brazil. In indigenous lands across Brazil, what we're seeing is this pressure, mostly from miners, illegal miners looking for gold or other minerals. And what we've we've seen in Apitereo is the surge in, in activity and these invasions, even though it is protected under federal law, and which is the case with, with many, many indigenous territories in Brazil. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. In the last couple of years, you may have heard about a deforestation crisis in the Amazon, particularly in Brazil. More recently, studies have come out that show the Brazilian portion of the Amazon which houses roughly 60% of the renowned rainforest, has crossed a dangerous point where it is now emitting more carbon than it is sequestering due to this heavy forest degradation and deforestation. So what exactly is going on here? And why have degradation and deforestation accelerated in Brazil at such a rapid pace? What is the impact this is having on Brazilian people, particularly the indigenous people that have always called the Amazon home? What is the impact it's having on the Brazilian economy, Brazilian lives, and what is the impact it's having on the Brazilian economy? Today on Animalia, we dive into these questions and more with Ana Yonova, an environmental journalist in Brazil who has covered this topic in depth for years from multiple different fronts. So my name is Ana Yonova. I'm a freelance journalist based in Brazil where I cover environmental issues and deforestation in the Amazon and the impacts of environmental degradation on indigenous people. We're extremely thankful for Anna's time, and this is a really important episode to listen to. If you want to know what is really happening in Brazil right now and care about the Amazon rainforest and all the wonderful life it houses, human and non-human alike, as well as the valuable role it plays for all of us globally on the climate front. One thing that's been circulating in the news lately, and I'm sure you've seen it, is these these studies that have been coming out around the sort of collective status of the carbon sink of the Amazon rainforest, particularly in Brazil, which I I think Brazil houses what 60% of the of the Amazon roughly. And and you know these these studies have come out and have said that you know the Amazon has kind of crossed over to a point where it's now a net emitter versus a a net sequester of carbon as it historically has been and the primary uh, drivers of this are degradation and deforestation in fact degradation from some of these studies looks at as as you know could be as even more impacting this negatively than than full on deforestation but they're both contributing to it and i think the study i read that is that in the last 10 years the Amazon has now emitted a little over 16 billion tons of carbon and has and has sequestered about 14 billion tons. And this is the first time in like kind of a decade period that they've they've seen this. But it's also one of the first times they've really studied holistically. I was curious on what your reaction has been to these studies. And then we can kind of use that to, to sort of segue into, you know, what is actually happening with 
forest degradation and forest deforestation in in the Amazon? Sure. Yeah. So so I think like a lot of people that are following the situation in the Amazon and, and working with these issues here in Brazil, my reaction was that it's it's an incredibly sad kind of statistic, but not surprising. If you've been following the situation and have, have seen what's happening on the ground, you know, the fact that we've reached this point is not kind of shocking to me, unfortunately. What we, a lot of my work has centered around the drivers of this. And really when we have this kind of landscape where destruction of the force is not criticized strongly by the government and is not uh, sanctioned really, you have this proliferation that has really gained ground over the last couple of years, especially under the leadership of, of President Jair Bolsonaro. So what we see here really is this acceleration based on almost this encouraging atmosphere, this context that allows this to proliferate. So in terms of my reaction, I, I guess that that was kind of the the sad fact, kind of you know, quantified really. And then digging into, um, you know, the deforestation issue and it's so complicated and, and it's obviously been, been going on before the current regime of Bolsonaro and he's certainly accelerated it, which we'll get into for just like the average person. If they ask you, you know, what, what's going on with deforestation in Brazil, as hard as it probably is to have a, a succinct answer to that, because it is so complicated, what would your answer be? And, and maybe is there any particularly high-level stats around the amount of forest that's been degraded or cleared in the last, you know, two years or 10 years that really kind of stand out to you? Sure. So really, generally speaking, we've seen deforestation and degradation, as you mentioned, reaching really shocking, kind of alarming levels. The Amazon has seen kind of its highest levels of deforestation in the last decade. So we are seeing this surge. It is mostly driven by cattle ranching, but there are several other factors that are really, really contributing to this acceleration. It's one of the key problems that that we see in a lot of these areas is invasion of indigenous lands of conservation areas, which are supposed to be off limits. These are supposed to be protected by federal law. Brazilian law is actually quite strong, and there are provisions to theoretically protect these areas and protect indigenous people living within them. But we're seeing the surge of invasions of deforestation, of burning of these areas, which has has reached these really shocking levels in the last few years. And the... Deforestation, from my understanding, is primarily driven for economic reasons, right? Be it uh, mining, be it ranching, agriculture, but it's all kind of in the name of, of, of you know, kind of commercial interest and in, in growing the Brazil economy. I and mean, it's the proponents of it, or like that's that's their rationale. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's exactly kind of at the center of the of the discourse driving all of this. There's a lot of focus in the states that kind of form the Amazon on the state level and also on the federal level. There's a lot of discourse from 
lawmakers that continue to to kind of argue that economic development is not possible without destroying the Amazon. So there is no scenario that they're they're kind of putting forward where preserving the environment can go alongside with growing the economy, bringing prosperity to people. These are often regions of Brazil that are less developed and they're they're less wealthy than some of the the southern kind of regions of the country. So this is a really appealing message to a lot of people who live there who are seeing the this dynamic of, you know, environmental protections as cumbersome. They're seeing it as a barrier to their prosperity, to their wealth and kind of economic progress. And this is, you know, this has been echoed by the president. Of course, he has said on a number of occasions that in order for Brazil to to grow and to develop and to modernize, it's a crucial part of that is really developing the, the Amazon, allowing agricultural activity, allowing mining activity within preserved areas, within indigenous lands. So, so this has been kind of the the rhetoric of economic growth that has been put forward from kind of lawmakers, from kind of the higher levels of government. And it has really trickled down because it's an appealing message to people who live in these areas that are kind of, you know, part of this forgotten part of Brazil. Hmm. How, how much of that is is pure messaging versus like, it, you know, is there any validity that there is economic growth coming out of this? And, you know, this is not to, to defend this. You and I are both I think on the side of protecting the Amazon and 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 the forest and the environment, and so and we're going to get into you know ways to do that while still allowing uh, the economy to grow in other ways. But I'm just curious, like, is there any validity that you know there is economic progress, meaning economic gains coming out of these areas, and it's not just messaging that you know there are jobs being created, people are getting pulled out of poverty you know, we're previously in it. Is there, is there any, any validity to that at all? Yeah, that's a good point because I think it's hard to say whether there's kind of a, a causal relationship here, but I think it's pretty clear to, to everyone that, that Brazil is a huge economic, sorry, let me try that again. I think it's pretty clear that Brazil is a huge agricultural producer. It feeds a big chunk of the global population. There is, it is objectively lucrative to, to wade deeper into forests, to produce more soy, to raise more cattle. This is not kind of the issue at hand. But really, I don't, I don't believe that the evidence is there to support that deforestation has to go hand in hand with that. Researchers, especially those working on agroforestry projects, are saying to me that really there's a lot of potential for just increasing productivity on the lands that already exist. So deforesting more to increase production and bring prosperity isn't necessarily the only narrative that exists and the only path that exists. The, you know, obviously a big, a big player in all this is Bolsonaro. There was an interview. I remember seeing it kind of stuck with me. I think it was 2019 where yeah, I think he's responding to critics from Europe and across the world on what was happening in the Amazon. And he just came out and said, the Amazon is ours. We get to do what we want with it, which I translated as the Amazon is mine. I'm the president of Brazil. I get to do what I want with it. <laughs> and that indigenous people don't want to live like cavemen, which I translated as 
you know, even though I'm not an indigenous person and, and never was, I know exactly what they want and need. And it just struck me as like an incredibly kind of like that interview in particular, like narcissistic. I have all the answers. I'm all knowing. And it reminded me a lot of, you know, the, 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 the president we had to deal with here for four years and Donald Trump. And that interview kind of stuck out with me, particularly on this issue for that reason. For folks, when a lot of folks listening to this will not know who Bolsonaro is, maybe they've seen the name, but I'm sure some people don't, you know, don't even know who the president of Brazil is since most of our listeners in the U.S. Can you help, you know, just kind of describe Bolsonaro, his, his sort of tactics, his philosophies, where he kind of sits in the political spectrum, and, and, and then we can get into his kind of role in all this? Sure, absolutely. So Jair Bolsonaro really is uh, this very, has this persona that is built around populism. He won the election on the back of really this messaging that was geared towards people that felt disenfranchised with the political elite. So there's, there's a lot of parallels to how he rose to power with what we also saw in, in the U.S. So this part of his support base is this Part of the population that includes agricultural producers, that f- includes cattle ranchers that feel kind of ostracized. And, you know, their view has been that their livelihoods are being attacked, their well-being and their kind of prosperity is being attacked by environmentalists, by the global elite, by previous governments who have tried to curb deforestation and move away from environmental destruction. So his messaging has been particularly appealing to these people who have felt that he is on their side. And he has repeatedly made statements, including encouraging invasions into indigenous lands by wildcat miners. And he really has left this this feeling on the ground that he is really encouraging, he's working towards legalizing these activities and, and helping this chunk of the population prosper. So this is why, you know, he's had a really, really powerful influence. What, he, what the president says really, really kind of trickles down to activity on the ground over the last two years, just to kind of give you a sense of how this has panned out on the ground. We've seen a surge of invasions into indigenous territories, which are supposed to be protected but he has repeatedly stated that they should be opened up to wildcat mining. And we've uh, also seen him push forward a federal law, which looks to legalize this activity. So really, all the signals he's, he's sending are positive ones, and which is why he has played such a huge role in what we've seen in terms of destruction in the Amazon. And is, the, is part of that... So, I mean, I'm just drawing parallels to Trump, who, I, of course, I know much better. And you can tell me if these parallels are accurate or not. Well, Bolsonaro, Trump also was just horrific for the environment. On, on actual record, he rolled back nearly 400 environmental regulations and protections during his, during his tenure. So it's it's documented. It's factual on, on all the on the rollbacks he did. And the way I kind of, you know, sort of tried to logically make sense of it was that you know Trump banked everything on his ability to grow the economy, 
and his ability and, and, you know, and, and that was his whole message, right? I mean, he had other messages on immigration and, and healthcare and things like that. But for the most part, he won the election on, I'm a businessman and I can grow this economy and help you all prosper. And then he got in office and it was all about, you know, how do I get more money in people's pockets? So that was primarily wealthier people. And he kind of like had this message that I'm growing the economy for all of you, especially the middle class and working class. When in reaction, in reality, he was kind of just growing the economy for the wealthy class, you know, but there were jobs that were created under, under Trump and, you know, the economy did see you know, some growth on, on some levers, the stock market, for example, but although the stock market does not really positively impact working class people, they're not stockholders. And so, but the, the way he, I think, compartmentalized his environment is like, he saw environmental protection as, you know, counter to his delivering on his promise of growing the economy. And he, he obviously couldn't make sense of how do I grow the economy while protecting the environment. He saw those as two opposing things. And so like the environment, the environmental protection issues were just in his way of, of short-term growing the economy, which he needed to do, deliver on his campaign promise and keep his constituency. So that that's kind of like Trump. Is that is there parallels to what is going on with Bolsonaro? Absolutely. Bolsonaro is, uh, he his positioning is on the far right of the political spectrum, and he has absolutely used much of the, the same messaging. He has actually kind of styled himself as, you know, very much a Trump-like figure here. And he has used this this kind of discourse over and over again in various kind of issues throughout Brazil, but, but it's been especially evident in, on the issue of environment. He has used this kind of messaging that, you know, this is all getting in my way to delivering to, to anything that is going wrong in Brazil. Any reason why the economy isn't growing is, you know, this is the fault of my enemies. So these are things that are getting in my way. And he has absolutely really relied quite heavily on, on this, this message. Now, he has, although the system in Brazil, in terms of environmental protections, is has multiple layers, right? There's protections on the federal level, but also on, on the state level. So it's important to kind of point out that he is not the only one here that is driving this kind of discourse, anti-environment pro-growth and this kind of, you know, pitting one against the other, which he has consistently done. But he has been supported by kind of this group of allies on the state level who are also kind of parroting the, the same discourse around growth. And together with kind of these dynamics happening on the federal level and also on the state level, there's been some really significant rollbacks in environmental protections, which go far beyond rhetoric, right? We're not just talking about how he is, you know, his messaging is leading people to deforest more and invade indigenous territories more. He has also slashed the budgets of environmental protection agencies. So they can't do their job effectively. They can't stop people from going into a protected area and kind of raising trees and burning trees. So this has had a real impact on the ground in terms of 
uh, weakening protections. So he and he has cast this very much in the same way that that I think uh, we've seen in the U.S. as as a win for economic growth, as a win for him, kind of toppling these these forces of resistance. So he casts kind of NGOs, the international community that is calling for environmental protections. Anyone who is against kind of developing the Amazon, he has cast as anim- enemies. So this is really, really important in his discourse. Yeah. And a big part of what we know about the psychology of human beings as social creatures is like, you can rally people around a common enemy. And that kind of like fear mongering is a very effective, it's sad that it's very effective, but it is a very effective form of politics. You know, like telling people that, you know, certain certain parties, certain bodies, certain organizations, certain philosophies are out to get them, to get them worked up and get them nervous about it and get them all rallied around like a common enemy, even if there's no actual validity, that it truly is an enemy to what their their needs are and, and their prosperity. But if you can convince them that it is, it's a, it's a, it's a very... It's just a very effective form of, of politics, you know, sad, kind of sad, but true. I, you know, we talk about the international community. I want to talk about, move into a little bit of the indigenous community. And you sent me your piece on the, I'm going to, I'm going to probably need some pronunciation help here. I don't want to butcher it. The, the, the Paracana people, is that, is that correct? Paracana. Paracana. And then the, you know, the, Apiterawa forest is that? Apiterawa. Did, did I butcher that one yeah. too? <laughs> Apiterawa. Okay. Apiterawa and Paracana. Yes. Okay. I'll do my best. Sorry. <laughs> my <laughs> my ugly ugly American accent. Wow, I'm sure you're used to it. So the I think there's you know one that's just maybe set the stage for us on just like the Cliff Notes version of that of that article you wrote on what's happening with the Apiterawa forest and the Paracana people. But then the two things I want to kind of dig into, one is the sort of microcosm example that this served to me of like protection on paper, but not being enforced is not protection. And then two, you know, really like what do indigenous people actually want and need? Because, you know, the, you know, the, the Bolsonaro camp of things and that, that end of things is out there saying, well, indigenous people just want, you know, jobs and prosperity and they want to modernize. But then it seems like what actually happens, they, at best, they end up being low paid labor on these, these farms or ranches at best. And, and, and their, their culture and their identity, you know, really starts to get tarnished and, and, and uprooted, which I think, you know, I doubt they want. And so I, yeah, so maybe just set the stage for the Apiterawa kind of story and the, and the Paracana people high level. And then let's just talk about those two issues of like, you know, the, the protection without enforcement and then, you know, trying to better understand what indigenous people really want versus what certain people tell the media that they want. Sure. So what we've seen happen in the indigenous uh, territory called Apiterewa is, is really, it's, it's quite emblematic of what is happening in the rest of, of Brazil. In indigenous lands across Brazil, what we're seeing is this pressure, mostly from miners, illegal miners looking for gold or other minerals. And what we've we've seen in Apitereo is the surge in, in activity and these invasions, even though it is protected under federal law, and which is the case with, with many, many indigenous territories in Brazil. So they, on paper, they're protected. There are supposed to be certain mechanisms in place to ensure that 
outsiders stay out, including the the federal agency for for the protection of indigenous interests. And these mechanisms on, in theory, on paper, are supposed to, to provide a level of protection for indigenous people so they can remain within their their ancestral land and be able to survive off of it and continue living using their their traditional forms of, of livelihood and preserving their their traditional culture and really what we've seen is kind of a breakdown in this in this theory over the last few years with more and more invasions of these lands. This, of course, illegal mining within, you know, any protected area is problematic, but it's even more problematic within indigenous lands because, of course, it brings with it pollution of water sources, which the indigenous people use for, you know, to drink and bathe and and to to do everything really. So we have heavy metals in the soil, in the water. We have deforestation. We have burning. We have all of these these kind of really problematic impacts. And really, the 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 government is not necessarily stepping in to to stop this activity because there's there's a few reasons. But in Apitereo, there's been multiple operations trying to to stop this activity. But there's there's kind of this sense of emboldenment. There's this sense of impunity. So there's, you know, they kick out miners and they just come back and they they start this activity all over again. So this is this is just one territory where this is happening. But the story is really kind of being replicated across Brazil. So we're seeing this this really, you know, intense push by outsiders trying to invade, take advantage of the resources within indigenous lands. And really, you know, it presents a really significant threat to the health, the the livelihood, the cultural traditions of indigenous people. And they are really, to them, really what, what is important is preserving their you know, their way of, of life and preserving the forest. And that is, is coming increasingly under threat. What happens in some communities, it hasn't happened in Apitereo as much, but I've, I've heard about this happening in, in other indigenous territories, is that miners bring with them a host of social problems as well, right? They, they bring a lot of issues with, with alcohol and drugs and prostitution and diseases. And a lot of the time, because they're depleting the natural resources of this indigenous territory, some of the indigenous people start working for them. And it creates conflicts within the community. Some people within the indigenous community are against this activity, trying to expel the, the legal miners, others are going to work for them because increasingly their communities are becoming impoverished. So they're being left without choice. So really, it's just, you know, so emblematic of this cultural disintegration that we're seeing in these areas where we have outsiders invading and, and kind of taking over these lands. And this is the trouble messaging and why messaging is just so, it could be so dangerous is that, you know, those that are out there in Brazil, again, on the kind of Bolsonaro side from what I've seen, are messaging to people that <clears throat> this is what indigenous people want. They want progress. They want to modernize. They want, you know, more jobs. They they want all of these things and we're delivering that for them. Whereas like, you know, I think like it, it 
you know, as as you mentioned, indigenous people actually want their culture and they want their identity protected and they they kind of thrive in the ecosystem and and living within the forest that that's such a key part of their identity and the the worry that I have is seeing what's happened to Native Americans here in the United States where you know in our efforts to basically and we did i mean let's say in the 19th and 20th centuries across those two we pretty much converted all of the western united states into farm and grazing land and we pushed native americans into these small communities and then in those small communities they're not living you know in you know sort of as they were amongst the land and the culture and identity they had they're now stuck with like mcdonald's and denny's and all of these like just super like horrible kind of food options or living in food deserts where they, you know, they, they, they don't have the the land they used to have to, to provide the produce they do. And what's happening now in native American communities is like, not only are they having a hard time maintaining their cultural identity, but they also are like the communities that are hit hardest by diabetes and, 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 and other like health issues that come from just like living in places where you don't have healthy eating options. And, and, you know, casinos have been like, like, you know, message as the answer for these communities to prosper and have economic gain. But, you know, casinos bring, you know, just sort of uh, a lot of negative things with them, prostitution, drugs and gambling. And like, it's just that lifestyle is not exactly associated with a lot of healthy behavior. And, and it's really sad to see what's happened here. And, you know, I wonder if like, if, if, you know, the, the right wing and the, you know, kind of side of things that Brazil has their way could, could, you know, indigenous communities in Brazil end up looking like indigenous territories and communities in, in the U S that are like barely, you know, are barely able to maintain some part of their cultural identity and the sort of modern modernization that they've experienced in the last 150, 200 years has actually degraded their health their quality of life. And, and I wonder if that, that the same thing could happen in Brazil. No, absolutely. I mean, this, this issue that you mentioned of food security, I think is so crucial because there, there are already signs in, in some areas where I've reported, for example, I've seen kind of, you know, indigenous families and indigenous communities that have been displaced by agricultural activity are oftentimes kind of living on the periphery of these these towns that were built around, you know, soy or cattle ranching or mining. And, you know, a lot of the time they don't really have kind of the land or, or the quality of the land or, you know, the water sources anymore because they've been degraded or, or polluted. And oftentimes, you know, this this is so destabilizing to them in terms of of how they've always kind of survived as part of a community. So I think it's really dangerous. And it's in Brazil, I think, you know, it just kind of highlights how important it is not to put the onus on protecting indigenous lands and indigenous cultures on the indigenous people themselves, because there is more and more, uh, these communities are, are the ones that are kind of at the front lines of, of trying to protect their own lands. And this has led to a surge in kind of land conflicts, a lot of indigenous leaders being murdered. And, you know, they're, they're trying to, to keep the outsiders out and fight them off. But really, you know, their chances 
succeeding in that kind of, you know, conflict are weakened by the fact that they don't have institutional support, right? They don't have even the agency that has been tasked with protecting their interests. Their funding has been weakened to the point where, you know, these agencies have become kind of skeletons that are not able to to kind of protect Indigenous people like they're supposed to. So really, the onus should not be on these communities to protect themselves from invasions, from people degrading and deforesting their environment. Yeah, it's it's we need to I mean, all of us and, you know, and this this is a problem in most in many places in the world is, I mean, it's a, it's a problem in Australia with native peoples, Aboriginal peoples. It's, 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 it's an issue all over. It's obviously, you know, what's going on with China with the Uyghur population, but just this notion of cultural appropriation and this belief that progress is, you know, whatever my culture and my identity is, well, moving people to my, what I have is, is the name of progress is just not true. And, you know, different cultures should be respected and indigenous people provide such value to all of us in the way they live within the natural world and protect the natural world and live in true balance. And it's something that not only should we respect, we should learn from, if anything, like we should actually, those are the people that we should be employing to protect the forest, right? Because they know exactly what the forest needs more than any of us that grew up in cities and urban areas that just didn't didn't grow up in that in environment natively. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely concerning what's, what's been going on. And speaking of concerning, you also sent me a story you wrote about palm oil. I did not even know, and I guess it happened over a decade ago that palm oil arrived in Brazil. And for context, I've spent time in Indonesia in Borneo and did a deep dive into the palm oil industry out there. And for folks that don't know much about that, it has devastated the environment in Indonesia <clears throat> and Malaysia as well, but Indonesia in particular has been, and 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 you know, amazing natural ecosystems like Borneo have been just just wiped out by the palm oil industry, which is not a native plant species, requires a lot of land, a lot of maintenance, a lot of water, and is is also degrades the soil over time again because it's not a native species. And what's happening? What's happened in Borneo? Is that you know we're we're the palm oil industry is like essentially wiping out orangutans, like we they're going to go extinct most likely in the next twenty years. They're only in Java and Borneo is the only places they're left in the world, and those are both palm oil hotspots. And you know what is particularly concerning is it seems like what's happened in Brazil with the growth of the palm oil market is in direct con like it, directly related to that you know the pressure Indonesia and Malaysia have been under to slow down their palm oil output because of the environmental impact it's having. And now places like Brazil are just stepping in, like looking at opportunity of saying, okay, well, we'll pick it back up. And, you know, what you pointed out in your article is that the messaging, and this gets, again, gets back to like all of the ways you can just mislead people with messaging is that this is actually better for the environment because we're only planting palm oil on formerly cleared lands, you know, like cattle ranching farmlands. And, you know, we're at, and those lands, you know, we don't have vegetation. We're bringing back vegetation through palm oil. We're not clearing any lands for it. But what's actually happening in reality, right, is it seems like, okay, well, those people that are selling their lands to the palm oil industry, they just then go clearing other lands for themselves. They're not just going to not live anymore and not do their trade. 
And so it is indirectly kind of wiping out more forest, degrading more forest. And there's still this like challenge of, again, palm oil is not a native species. And when you bring mass quantities of monocropping non-native species, over time, there are serious effects that happen. And it just, it's, it's, it's troubling because you would think we learned our lesson as, as humans in Indonesia and Malaysia with this industry in particular. And it seems like maybe it's starting all over again in Brazil. Yes, absolutely. I've also kind of spent time looking at the impact of, of palm in the industry in, in Asia. So to me, it was fascinating to see kind of this story really starting to repeat itself here in Brazil. And it's the messaging has been fascinating. Here in Brazil, there's there's already kind of a big uh, domestic market for bioenergy, for biofuels. And the most kind of, you know, forceful part of this new push towards palm oil has also been, it's linked to, to being potentially, you know, really good for the environment because we're producing bioenergy. So it's, it's been kind of not only this, this rhetoric, exactly as you pointed out, that, you know, we're only planting on, on land that was already dis- deforested. So this is, you know, clean crops free of deforestation. But it's also this kind of secondary line of reasoning that, oh, this is this is actually really good. It's part of the, the bio economy, kind of the green economy. So yeah, we, we've seen, you know, this industry growing in the last 10 years here. It still is relatively small compared to Asia. But yes, absolutely. I think, you know, as you as you mentioned, there's been this awakening on the part of, you know, not just the governments in Southeast Asia, but also consuming nations about the destruction this is that you know this industry is causing in in Indonesia and in Malaysia, and you know there's been some some kind of more restrictive measures in the last few years, and instead of kind of this being applied globally, we're just shifting the production to another part of the world that still has intact rainforest that that can be kind of deforested and kind of more land cleared for for crops. It has been here in Brazil, it's also been really concerning because it is very, this palm oil growth is occurring really close to indigenous territories. So of course, the pesticides involved and the water, the, the sheer amount of water that this crop requires all of this has had a huge impact. And, and just so you have kind of a, an idea of what we're already seeing, and this is, I, I feel like, I, from my perspective at least, I see this as the beginning of the, the palm oil kind of uh, boom here in Brazil. And indigenous communities are already talking about kind of localized changes to their climate that are making it more difficult for them to grow their own food. And, you know, we're... Uh, I guess we're only going to see how these impacts become, you know, develop over time if if they become more more intense as time goes on. But it's it's really really concerning, kind of the impact that is having, even in these early stages. Yeah, there is nothing organic or regenerative <laughs> about palm oil. And for those listening, you know, just do also your own research in the the foods you buy and. And just please try to avoid anything that uses palm oil. Look at those ingredients list, you know, on a global level, like that industry needs to, needs to be, you know, sort of clamped down on. And part of it is consumers too. Like, and it's hard because it's in so many products. I mean, it's in lipstick. It's in, you know, it's, it's in so many different things. It's, 
yeah, it's 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 definitely concerning that industry at a global level, and it's, it's happening in Brazil now. I'm curious on like <clears throat> for the civilians in Brazil, is what is the sentiment they have? Is it kind of divided between right, right and left, as it is kind of the United States? Is the environmental protection become a truly political vehicle in Brazil, where it's like, you know, if you're right wing, you're conservative, you really have a hard time, you know, sort of standing with it. If you're, you know, liberal and left, it's a pillar of your, you know, of your platform. Is it as politically charged? Are we seeing, are you seeing, especially with the deforestation issue in the Amazon and degradation issue, is there been a rise in the environmental movement in Brazil? You know, is, are there some, any positives that we can take from this in the sense of like, well, more people are aware of the issue now and care about the environment. And there's a movement happening, you know, on social media and things like that, that wasn't happening as aggressively a few years ago. Is there anything like that happening that we can at least look at from a positive standpoint? Yeah. So I think something to bear in mind about kind of the context in in Brazil is, first of all, the country at the moment is very, very polarized. It, you know, what you've seen in the U.S. is also playing out here. It is politically you know, very, very, the, the, the left and the right are so far from each other. And everything that has kind of been used by Bolsonaro as part of his rhetoric, as part of his platform, has become very politically charged. So environment is one of those, one of those, those kind of pillars that he's used. And there is a kind of a, a really strong division in, in terms of, you know, who, kind of positions themselves as for the environment and who, you know, the people that position themselves pro-development. But underneath all of this is this context of kind of this alternate reality, which has been a product of kind of Bolsonaro's rise to power. We have a huge, huge issue with misinformation, disinformation, fake news here. So anything that comes out, oftentimes you'll see these, you know, shocking figures coming out from, you know, the National Space Agency or some other research body that very clearly outline that, you know, deforestation and forest degradation is out of control here. And the people that align themselves with the with the right and the, with the far right and with the president simply just dismiss things that don't fit in with that, with that reality. So, you know, there's a lot of the times you'll hear people, oh, this is not, this is not true. This, these uh, figures are fake, right? So there's, there's this dismissal of even the issue being so, you know, reaching these alarming levels where, you know, we've reached these huge levels of, of deforestation, but oftentimes, you know, people that support the president will say, no, it's just being defore- deforestation is just being exaggerated by the media, which is cast as an enemy, by environmentalists who are also the enemy, by, you know, political opponents of the of the Bolsonaro government. So really there's this rejection that is kind of under all of this, kind of this undercurrent. So it, it complicates things because there's a possibility for her discourse between one side and the other is diminished because you know, people on the, on the right and, and the far right just approach the table with this rejection of, of the facts around environmental devast- devastation in this country, right? The facts around environmental degradation and deforestation. Yeah, and this, and this also just you know points to... <clears throat> The problem that 
you know, I talk about a lot around the fact, like the reality today where most people get their information from social media, so forms of social media, be it Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and these places are all like, you know, personalized echo chambers. And so like, they're just going to keep giving you what you're going to click on the most, which is things that like reinforcing things that you already believe, regardless of whether it's factual or not. And fear-mongering over the things that are opposing to you because that's what gets the most clicks. And and that's that's all those companies care about is clicks and, and keeping you on the platform. They're not zero, and I've worked at some of them, they have zero concern over around addressing misinformation. And and the what happens then is people are not working on the same facts and, and foundation. And then how do you have a debate with somebody in a productive way when there's no foundation to agree on? It's it's nearly impossible, and and it's and and I I wish I had the solution because I would probably be working on it, <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a big problem, and it's something people need to recognize. Well, speaking of solutions, what is being put out there today? In a and like, are there any solutions that have been put forward that like show that like, here's a method where we could you know, still grow our economy and, and lift more people out of poverty and create jobs while protecting the Amazon and actually reforesting it, which now needs to happen because it's been so far deforested as we talk about the top, that is now a net carbon emitter. So it needs to be reforested. And so you talk one thing I think you mentioned earlier was, you know, can we get more yield and efficiency out of the out of the places we already have on the farming and ranching side? But is there any anybody else has has anybody else put out solutions that you know address both needs, both the environmental needs and the forestation needs and the economy needs, or or is it still kind of divided between those lines of like, look, we're either going to you know focus on just economic growth at you know environmental costs, or we're going to sort of accept that we're going to have to grow the economy differently or more slowly or things like that in order to protect the environment? Or has anybody proposed a solution that kind of does both? Sure. So just before I, I kind of get into that, something that I, I should have mentioned earlier, but it's when we're looking at kind of the economic reality around agriculture and, you know, agricultural producers, it's important to kind of keep in mind that a lot of these people that are affected by you know, environmental regulations that they see these these restrictions as hurting them are not people who are living in poverty. They are huge landowners. They are, you know, producing soy or ranching cattle on, on huge scales, right? So there's a little bit of a fallacy when, you know, when the, the official rhetoric talks about, you know, creating jobs and alleviating poverty, because a lot of the people that benefit from the weakening of environmental protections are people who are really powerful and very wealthy, right? So this is a, a really important kind of caveat to all of this. Now, in terms of, of you know, growing the, the economy while not destroying the, the environment, I think it's hard to, to gain for that, to gain momentum when it's not on the national agenda, when it's not seen as something that, you know, that is, that should be put as a priority. I think, you know, from my reporting, I've seen some really interesting kind of localized projects. People are researching ways, you know, different kinds of seeds that can yield more, different ways where, you know, they can transform areas that are, 
you know, degraded to replant them and still, you know, support, you know, communities that are relying on agricultural production. But really, you know, the, the most promising projects, in my mind at least, have been those that focus on smallholder farmers, right? So reforesting patches that have been cut down or, you know, burnt and, you know, are not really, you know, they need to be recuperated, they need to be reforested, but also, you know, giving the opportunity for impoverished families, small scale farmers to grow crops in a sustainable way with support from, you know, kind of these organizations giving them some, some technical support, right? So they know how to maximize the the yields from their land without having to go deeper into the forest. And so really, you know, the, the projects that I think are really hopeful here are the ones that are focusing on these kind of smaller, you know, these families that are growing crops on three hectares, 10 hectares, right? So those are those are kind of the, the, the solutions that I think, you know, we need to probably have more political will willpower behind to to be able to, to kind of get to the place where we're we're implement, implementing projects like these on a larger scale. Because up until now it's just been small scale kind of trying this out, people and organizations looking for solutions. But really I don't know how, you know, we would make the the leap towards kind of larger scale economic growth, you know, going hand in hand with environmental protection if we don't really have, you know, kind of the the higher levels of of government getting behind these efforts. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. What are your thoughts? And this is kind of the last question that's related to the the solution set and we, you and I, I briefly shared this with you when we kind of spoke for the first time. And, uh, you know, what I'm proposing here, you're going to have to take a leap of faith with me because it requires a lot of assumptions <laughs> that are, are, you know, an international cooperation that is it's hard to come by. But if we can take that leap of faith for a second, the, the dream state for me has always been, especially in recent years, is like, well, there's economic value on maintaining these natural worlds on maintaining the Amazon there. And, you know, we, we have data now on what additional carbon and other, you know, methane and other greenhouse gas emissions as they get added to the atmosphere. You know, we, we have models that show the impact on inclement weather and storms and climate migration and all these things. And we, and we have data on the costs that those end up having. And it's not perfect, right? Like this is not a perfect model. There's still so much of the natural world and the and, and you know the sort of how it works that we don't know at all. But there is there are starting points of this data. And so as I've like learned about these data models, <clears throat> it feels like it's logical that you could get to a place where you could put an economic value on forestation and forest protection because of the positive role it does plays and the Amazon has always played up until the last 10 years in sequestering carbon and protecting the the climate and the environment. <clears throat> and if we could figure out those models and get aligned with them, I've always thought, well, shouldn't, you know, the international community 
And based on this, you know, kind of size of your economy, so U.S. and China would have to lead this effort, contribute to a, essentially a global fund to pay for forestation services. And indigenous people can actually get jobs for doing what they already do. They're kind of, in a way, doing un, unpaid labor for us, as I look at it, in protecting the forest today, because it does actually trickle down to ec- positive economic impact for us the more carbon that gets sequestered, we're just not we're just not paying for it. We're not acknowledging it. In the same way that for years corporations don't pay for their environmental externalities, don't pay for their their pollution and their their economic damage as a cost. And so do you think it, is it too much of a pipe dream to think there's a scenario where we could get together as an international community and put a fund together that actually pays for environmental servicing as a way of growing economies for places like Brazil that also, you know, protect the environment? Or am I am I getting too like altruistic and too like, you know, too far from anything that could could ever be done in reality? Yeah, I mean that that scenario is is really, really appealing, right? I, and it would it would kind of resolve a lot of issues because really protecting the environment is oftentimes costly. And, uh, you know, I think we, we have this recognition globally that many countries that are now kind of, you know, higher income countries did their part in kind of, you know, damaging the, the environment, not necessarily at an economic cost, right? So it's, you know, the responsibility of the international community is, it's a complex question, right? There's, you know, we all benefit from an environment that is protected and that is flourishing, right? But having, you know, the political willpower to pay for it, I think is complex because we something that we saw very recently, for example, is, you know, this pledge that Brazil made, you know, asking the international community to pay every year to to help kind of recuperate some of the damage done to the to the Amazon. And that has not been received very positively. So I think it's an interesting kind of bellwether okay, that that it's not necessarily maybe there's not that level of altruism and you know a lot of countries are a bit resistant to to kind of giving money to to a government that can kind of do what it wants with with that fund and and kind of you know allocate it to environmental protections but really in in kind of a a very you know, there needs to be probably a lot of thought behind the systems, kind of the control systems in place. If there's going to be a fund with a lot of cash that is meant for environmental protection, how, you know, how will we go about allocating? And how will, you know, how will the logistics, you know, work? How will we agree on kind of the best plan to, to kind of, you know, help the environment recover in this country. So it's, I think it's a complex question. I I do think that it's undeniable that the international community has, you know, some responsibility and is going to benefit from the Amazon kind of recovering. 
but not sure that there is the the kind of political will behind it to to really put you know, for countries to put kind of their money where their mouth is. So I'm not, you know, I really hope that you're, you're right. And I hope that this, this kind of takes off and gains traction. But at the moment, I, I do think it kind of depends on leadership as well. In the case of the, the current situation, I do find that, you know, the international community has been incredibly resistant to contributing you know, to at a time when Bolsonaro really hasn't shown a commitment to to kind of helping the Amazon recover. And on the other hand, we've actually seen a lot of boycotting, right? Companies saying, well, we're going to stop buying products from Brazil. So I do think that's an important kind of point of discussion that maybe we need to move away from, because I'm not sure that boycotts and kind of hurting Brazil economically in that way is going to necessarily yield results. So whereas maybe, you know, people are not prepared to pay for for the, the recovery of the Amazon, we also need to kind of rethink this method of, you know, I'm going to punish as a way to to incentivize the government to, to start protecting the forest. So I, I see that as, as really, really kind of troubling and really problematic at the moment and seems to be getting traction. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate the work you do. And it's been really good chatting about this. And and yeah, just just big thank you for, for joining. <laughs>